0: You're listening to Time in the Word. Although regeneration changed the spiritual position of a slave, it did not eliminate his social status. He was still a slave. Many New Testament epistles provided valuable counsel for the converted servants and slave owners. For example, Paul encouraged Philemon to receive the recently saved Onesimus no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother, Philemon verse 16. This cultural background of the first century provided an excellent analogy between the principles of spiritual sonship and those of spiritual bondage. Let's listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Let's open once again to Galatians chapter 4. The redemptive purpose of God is the source of the deliverance of man from the bondage or from his bondage to the law. The eternal decree was effectively executed by the Son through his entrance into the world and his subsequent vicarious crucifixion. Look at verse 4. He addresses or brings up the incarnation of the Son. He says in verse 4, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There are five features, if you look at this verse, there are five features of this incredible event listed here. And it's important that we look at them. First, we see the time of the incarnation. It is indicated when he says, when the time came to completion. The incarnation of Christ is a historical event. This historical event corresponds to the cultural time set by his father. Chapter 4, verse 2. So, just as a human father selected a date at which the child would become a son, so the divine father chose a time. The divine father chose a time when the world would pass from its childhood under legal supervision to a period of spiritual sonship. The events of Christ's incarnation, of his death, and of his resurrection marked the change from the dispensation of law to the age of grace. You recall that Daniel had predicted that the age of the Messiah could be discerned by the computation of years from the Persian decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. The Messiah was to come during the domination of the fourth Gentile world power over Israel. We had Babylon, we had Persia, we had Greece, and we had Rome. The Magi recognized the significance of their era. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. But the religious leaders were ignorant of the signs of the times. So first we have the time of the incarnation. Second, the second feature we see listed here in verse 4 is that the incarnation was a commissioned event. The verb sent literally means to send away from with a commission. What does that mean? That God sent His Son with a commission. Now, keeping it in the context in which we're looking at this, he sends them with a commission to turn servants into sons. Christ was God's apostle to turn servants into sons. He was his apostle to the world of sinners. His departure from heaven to earth shows that Christ actually existed before he was conceived in Mary's womb which is important to understand because we believe that Christ is the second person of the triune God he has forever been he didn't come into being as the son of God when he was conceived that's not what the conception addresses or or teaches third the person sent was and if you look at the way it's worded in the verse his son The person sent was the Son of God. He did not become the Son of God at his human birth, at his baptism, at his crucifixion or his resurrection. Rather, he was and is and will forever be the Son of God. The sending and the giving of the Son are... Uh, synonymous in in the New Testament as we see it in John 3.16. So within the Trinitarian oneness of God, there is equality in persons. But what we must understand, however, is that there is a voluntary subordination in function to carry out the divine will. So God the Father, he sends the Son. And this occurred once and only once in the history of the world. And by the way, no other person could have been sent. The fourth feature that we see in this verse is the means of the incarnation was through the virgin birth. He says that he was born, verse 4, born of a woman. He was that promised seed of the woman that would destroy Satan. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium? His virgin conception and birth out of Mary fulfilled that Jewish expectation you recall that we read in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign what's the sign the virgin will conceive have a son and name him Emmanuel the eternal son of God came to be human out of Mary the birth was necessary in order that he might establish himself as the legitimate son of David and the son of Abraham. By the overshadowing ministry of the Holy Spirit, he took on himself a human nature, yet in doing so, without receiving a sinful tendency. He was perfect, sinless, and he remained so. And the fifth element that is pointed out in this verse is that his incarnation occurred, notice how Paul says, under the law. In the beginning was the word And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He came to where men were. He was born of a Jewish woman and he himself said in Matthew chapter 5 that he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. He was circumcised. I mean, think about what it means when it says that he came under the law. He was circumcised at the age of eight days according to Luke chapter 2. He was presented in the temple at the age of 40 days, Luke chapter 2. And he took his pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Passover when he was 12, latter part of Luke chapter 2. In his adult experience, he never, never violated the law, although he did break the Pharisaic interpretation of what that law meant. Now, the question becomes, he came, he was sent, and he gives us those important points about the incarnation in chapter 4. But then in chapter 5, Paul now addresses the two purposes of of Christ's incarnation and his crucifixion. So the question becomes, why did he come? Why was he sent? What was the purpose? Look at verse 5. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Two purposes of Christ's incarnation and crucifixion are set forth here. And they both manifest the end result of the sending of the Son by the Father. First, Christ died to redeem those under the law. Christ came, lived died, rose again, and ascended back to heaven, and is seated today at the right hand of God, all for the purpose of redeeming a people to himself. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior by faith through grace alone, you have been redeemed. By the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ and the life of Christ. Because the life of perfection plays a significant role in redemption. Had he violated a single law, had he broken one law, had he committed one sin, he could no longer be our Savior. Chapter 3 and verse 13 teaches us that men are both bought out of the curse of the law and out of their position under the law. So if you are a redeemed child of the living God, you have been bought out of the curse of the law and you have been bought out of the position under the law. The redeemed have been completely set free from any further obligations to legalism. So now you see how this fits into Paul's entire argument with the, with the Judaizers, who again insisted in observing and obeying and keeping laws in order to be redeemed. He says, because you have been redeemed, you have been set free. You are completely free from any obligations to legalism. So if the Jews were removed from their condition under the law, the argument goes, then why did the pagan Gentile converts want to be placed under the law? And notice, secondly, His redemptive dead made it possible so that we might receive adoption as sons. To be put into a position of legal sonship, one must be taken out of a status of legal supervision. Remember the process of going from being a child under the law to being a a son? Well, we have been taken out of, because we have been redeemed, we have been taken out of the status of legal supervision, and the analogy from culture proved that axiom from verses 1 and 2. No man could receive sonship while he was still under the law. Thus no man could ever be justified by both faith and works. It just cannot be. So either Paul is right in presenting a gospel such as he does, or man is right in his philosophy about how one is reconciled to the living God, and that is by making some contribution of his own to that process of salvation. Christ thus came to taste death, to bring many sons into glory, and to, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.15, to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Listen, think about that for a moment. If you are a redeemed child of God, you are one of those whom he is bringing into glory. How often do we ponder that truth? Do we understand our destiny? Do we understand what it is that awaits us as the redeemed, adopted sons of the living God? Do we understand what it is that we, even now, and we address this in a moment, possess in Christ what our inheritance is, what we are heirs of? Sonship comes after redemption from legalism in verses 6 and 7 he he addresses confirmation of sonship so the question becomes if Christ was sent the father sent Christ and if Christ came in order to redeem us and to adopt us as sons of God then the question that one might ask himself is how can a person know that he is a son or a daughter of the living God or what are the evidences of the fact that he or she is no longer a spiritual child under legal supervision. The opening clause of verse 6, he says, Because you are sons. Who is he speaking to here? Yes, directly to the Galatians, but by extension to who? Any who have been redeemed and adopted as sons and daughters of God. If you are a Christian, then he is saying about you, You are sons irrespective of what you might feel think if god has declared you to be justified and he has adopted you as a son or a daughter to himself you are what he says you are and he says here you are sons and that clause introduces us to two spiritual realities that will exist in the life of every genuine christian they are results of sonship which actually confirm their position. What are those two things? One, awareness of the Father. Look at what it says in verse 6. And because you are sons. Again, let me let me pause here for a moment. If you have by faith trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, if you have sought God's forgiveness by repenting of your sin, you are sons. It's a fact. It's a reality. That could never be taken away or changed, but he says that if you are that, then there's going to, one of the things is there's going to be an awareness of the Father. The living reality of the Father-Son relationship is achieved through a series of three steps. First of all, notice what he says. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, which, by the way, shows the intimacy between the Son and the Spirit within the Godhead. The work of the Son is to bring us into relationship with the Father, while the work of the Spirit is to seal the family tie. Thus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together to make us God's true sons and daughters. God the Father sent the Son to provide the position of sons, chapter 4, verse 4. And the he sent the Spirit to activate the practice of sonship in the life of the believer. Secondly, the Spirit is present. Notice what he says. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So the Spirit is present within the hearts of believers. That's where he has been sent. And of course, the heart refers to the seat of personality. It is the inner man, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, the entire body of the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It is impossible to be a son or daughter of God without having the sign of sonship within. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but if anyone does not have the Spirit, of Christ he does not belong to him if you have the Spirit of Christ according to Galatians then you belong to him thus the presence of the Spirit within the heart of a believer must occur at the moment of sonship not some post conversion experience as some teach even today there are no sons there are no daughters without the Spirit third the Spirit of Christ cries out to the Father from within the believer and sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That participle crying refers to the spirit and not to the Christian in this verse. However, the believer also cried out. Because in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, listen to what Paul says. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, father so in Galatians Paul is saying it is the spirit who cries out in Romans he says it is the believer who cries out thus both cry out thus the spirit through the believer causes the new son of God to exclaim the spiritual fatherhood of God so one of the evidences is our awareness of the father the second is heirship with a son look at verse 7 so you are no longer a slave but a son And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice that the verse indicates a sequence from slave to son to heir. But you recall that in the cultural analogy in verse one, the sequence went from heir to servant to son. So what's the main difference between the two? Well, the main difference is that all men were born as spiritual paupers. We were bankrupt, dead, lost in our sins. We were enslaved to the bondage of sin. We were slaves at the outset, but God had to redeem us, and he did redeem us to regenerate us as children and to adopt us at the very same moment as sons and daughters. In the natural life, sonship takes years to accomplish, but in the spiritual life, it occurs in an instant. The moment you are justified, you have become an adopted son or daughter of God. Warren Wiersbe, and he's... Brief commentary on, on uh, Galatians. he cites these contrasts between a son and a servant. He notes that the son has the same nature as the father, but the servant does not, according to Second Peter chapter one, verse four. He notes that the son has a father, but a servant has a master. He notes that the son obeys out of love, but the servant out of fear. He notes that the son has a future, but the servant has none. He notes that the son is rich, but the servant is poor. The son enjoys the riches of grace, goodness, and wisdom. In fact, the son possesses all riches in Christ. You see, sonship carries within that relationship heirship. Every believer is then, look at the very end of verse 7, every believer is then an heir through God. You know what that means? Here's what that means. All that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, and all that belongs to the Son belongs to me. Since Christ had to suffer to gain His glorification, and all believers should expect to go through the same means to gain their inheritance. Paul speaks to that in Romans chapter 8. And then in the last few verses of of the section we have read, in verses 8 through 11... He addresses the issue of pagan servanthood. He addresses some of the problems uh, that the Galatians are facing because of their change in direction by allowing themselves to be influenced by the Judaizers. Paul, in essence, is wanting to prove all along that legalism is no better than paganism. They came out of paganism, and they're being influenced into legalism And Paul is saying it makes no difference which one you go to, they're both the same thing. And let me explain what he means by that. In principle, paganism or legalism were identical because both required strict observance of rituals and laws to gain salvation. So it doesn't matter what it is that you return to or that you fail to come out of, they have the same effect. The outcome is identical in both cases. To Paul, the Judaizers were similar to the pagan religious priests who once supervised their, the Galatians before their conversion. Now, let's look at the, their pagan past. Let's look at our pagan past. The Galatians, or, and we, by you know, it speaks of us, are now sons. But we were once slaves, like the Galatians were, within a system of pagan legalism. Whatever that was, Paul is insisting that paganism is no different than legalism. So if we were pagans at one point, we were under slavery to some form of pagan legalism. And the opening words in verse 8, he says, But in the past, they're used to remind not only the Gentile converts in Galatia, but us of our former lives. And notice what he says in the first part of verse 8. He says they did not know the true God. Look at what he says in the first part of verse 8. But in the past, when you didn't know God, there was a time when they and we did not know God. They, we did not know God intellectually or experientially. We did not know the Trinitarian God of the Scriptures. They and we did not know who He was or what He demanded according to ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 they and we were without god in the world according to ephesians four seventeen and 18 they and we walked in the futility of their thoughts they are darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts that's our past you want to go back to that not only did they not know God, but look at the second part of verse 8, they were also serving false gods. He says, but in the past when you did not know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not gods. The verb you were enslaved means to serve as a slave. We, they, they, Before our conversion, before we were justified by faith, before we were adopted as sons of God, we were slaves to false gods. We worshiped things that by nature were not gods. Their bondage, our bondage to false gods was expressed through their pagan religious system of temples, priests, sacrifices, feasts, legal restrictions, and so on. You remember in Acts chapter 14, we're told that These pagans worshipped such gods as Jupiter and Mercury. Do people worship Jupiter and Mercury today? Oh, yes, they do. But these gods did not, nor do they actually exist, yet they're worshipped. They, according to Paul, by nature are not gods, he says. Even though pagans may give personal names to the gods of their polytheistic system and to the idols which represent those gods, this does not mean that those gods actually exist. Recently, I was listening to something uh, in the car. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's name came up and the whole issue of the God is dead pronouncement by Nietzsche. Nietzsche says God is dead. In fact, he says, and we killed him. Is God dead? Because Friedrich Nietzsche said he's dead. You see, though we make pronouncements about something, that doesn't mean that whatever we pronounce, even if we all do it in concert, it doesn't mean that that pronouncement is a fact. Whatever we called gods were by nature not gods at all. But we bowed to them. We were enslaved to them, but by the grace of God. And then he talks about their present position, our present position. Look at the first part of verse 9. But now. But now what, Paul? Since you know God, once they knew not God. Once we knew not God, but now... They and we know God. There is an obvious distinction between the negative and the positive. Jesus said in John chapter 17 verse 3, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Now listen to what Paul says, but now since you know God, you have life. Because eternal life is knowing God. And not only that, but the true God knows them. Look at what it says. But now, now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, not only do I know God, but more importantly, God knows me. The former views a mere knowledge of God, views salvation from man's perspective, whereas the second, being known by God, sees it from God's sovereign purpose. I must be known by God if I'm going to be a child of the living God. I cannot be his child and I cannot have eternal life unless he knows me. And because he knows me and because he first loves me, I come to know him and love him. And the perilous problem that Galatians and moderns face, he addresses in the second part of verse 9 and then in verse 10. Second part of verse 9, he says, listen, Since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? They were turning to legalism. Hmm. Listen, a true believer doesn't lose his salvation, but a true believer can be enslaved by many things. One of them being legalism in their own spiritual life. A church can be an enslaved church. Bound by all sorts of legalistic things. If you have tasted the grace of God, why would you want to turn back to anything that places you back in bondage to those things? And in verse 10, he addresses the fact that they were observing ritualistic feasts. And then in verse eleven he 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 expresses his perplexity. He says, I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. The Father, let me close here. The Father god the father because i fear sometimes we use proper words but we lose the impact of those words the father god the father the sovereign sent his son literally the son of god the second person of the triune godhead by being born of a woman took on human nature for the sole purpose of redeeming us of bringing us into the family of god as sons and daughters of blessing us with all things that belong to Christ, none which we earned, none which we deserve. If you as a child of the living God have tasted the goodness and the grace of God, Paul fears, watch it lest you return to something that causes you to lose your freedom in Christ and become enslaved to something. In the case of an unbeliever, if he doesn't come from under the bondage, he will never experience freedom in the first place thus we need to be faithful in expressing the gospel as the scriptures present it but for ourselves as believers because the galatians were believers he says you are sons will you return back to the elemental forces principles that will put you in bondage become cause you to become ineffective cause you to lose your love and passion and fervor for christ for the mission that you have been called for go and make disciples where are we individually and corporately here in this space that we just covered we are free positionally are we free practically and if we're not what what must we do to once again be free practically as we are positionally that's to shake away all things that may are legalistic and put us in some form of bondage and be just simply faithful to the word and will of god